Welcome to another podcast from the Burlington Congregation of the Church of God International. You can find out more about CGI Burlington on our website at cgiburlington.org. Afternoon, everyone. Nice to be together again. Hope we don't take that for granted. What a blessing it is to be together. We are on the 30th day of the ninth month. We are 131 days from Passover. That's about four and a half weeks, four and a half months. This year is the extra month added in. You recall the feast was so early. It was almost, in, it was still in the summer, actually. I think the feast part of it was still in the summer. Uh, was it after the fall? Anyway, it was, it was, it was much early, so we got the extra month this year. I'd like to just jump in and pick up where we left off last week when Pastor Bill Watson was here. So let's go to Romans chapter 13 and let's start there. Romans chapter 13, verse 11, is where we'll pick up. This is where Pastor Watson finished last week with a reminder to us, based on all the information he gave us. And do this, Romans chapter 13, verse 11, and do this, knowing the time that now it is high time to awake out of sleep. For now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The night is far spent and the day is at hand. Therefore, let us cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the day and not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, nor in, nor in strife and envy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. Make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. We've just spent the last three weeks discussing present world conditions of things like globalism, and its impact on our lives as the disciples of Christ. This term, followers of the way, disciples of Christ, this is becoming my preferred term for us rather than Christian. Uh, we can discuss that in the after-sermon discussion. I don't, uh, we don't want to get off on a tangent here, but in our lives as disciples of Christ. This was, as we've seen over the last three weeks, Pastor Adrian's two messages, Pastor Watson's two, uh, message from last week, is a fresh look at the prophets is what we experienced. Beginning with Isaiah and then many of the other prophets following show how after after the first fruits, after we, hopefully we as first fruits, receive our reward of eternal life, how we will help Christ redeem the sons of Israel so that they, under the spiritual guidance of the first fruits, can then show the Gentiles, the way to redemption and how the healing of the nations comes through this process of Christ redeeming Israel first. And what we heard last week from Pastor Watson fell quite in line with what we heard from Pastor Adrian's two sermons. Let's go back to Luke 14. In his messages, Pastor Adrian referenced this passage in Luke 14. We just read in Romans 13 how the time is, time is near for us to get serious, is what Paul said many, many centuries ago. And it is no further from the, it is quite closer to the truth today. Romans, or sorry, Luke 14 is where we are. Luke 14, let's go to verse 25. Now great multitudes went with him. And he turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, of course, we know this to mean love less, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be his disciple. Pastor Adrian referenced this, I believe it was at the end of his first message, in its application to the first roots and how we must give, the time for us is to give up our everything we love and follow Christ first, whatever that means us to give up. He doesn't need many for this phase of his plan, the first fruit phase of his plan, but what he does need are completely committed disciples, completely committed, that will not forsake Christ for anything. Previous to those three weeks, you had the opportunity to hear Deacon Jan 
on a profound two-sermon explanation on wisdom and how this and how godly wisdom, the wisdom from above that James speaks about, is different from demonic wisdom. Let's go to James chapter three and just cover one passage here that Deacon Jan covered. James chapter three. So we went to Paul in Romans and saw how the, the time is now for us to get serious about our behavior. We went to Christ and Luke where he talked to us there about the need to be completely committed to this way. To com- be completely committed. Now we go to James chapter 3. And we'll read just a few verses beginning in verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, and demonic. And it's that word demonic that, that jumps out at us. And we heard Deacon Jan differentiate between this wisdom from above and this demonic wisdom that James speaks about here. And how knowledge and understanding with help from the Holy Spirit and our desire to be who God wants us to be. How this all comes together and helps us become these completely committed disciples ready to work with Christ to do all that we heard about from pastors Adrian and Bill. So with all that learning, bringing all of these messages together against the backdrop of a world that is devolving into what Christ says is just the beginning of sorrows. And we see it every week. There's more and more and more and more. I posted on the bulletin yesterday about this Minnesota State professor that said that God was a predator by not allowing Mary the option to carry Christ. That he used his power and forced her into this, and therefore is a predator. Can you imagine calling your God a rapist? That should, that should, we should be coming out of our skin with anger when we hear that. If someone called my wife a predator, I should feel more anger that they're calling God a predator than my wife. And I can't imagine anyone calling my wife a predator and how angry that would make me. So as this world devolves, and this is, we, I don't even, we, we're not even at the beginning of sorrows yet. I don't, know what the, I don't know how bad it has to be to be at the beginning of sorrows, but we're sort of just opening the book of sorrows and looking in the table of contents and finding out where the beginning of the story is. How badly do we want to help? How badly do we want to be these committed disciples? that Christ talked about. Will we do anything God asks to be there for him? Today what I would like to do is bring these last five weeks of messages together and ask what this means for us. We've heard a lot over the last five weeks. It's been, it's, since we've come home from the feast, it's been pretty thick and heavy messages. As time passes, the pressure on God's people will ramp up. Clearly it's ramping up for us with these heavy messages we've been hearing. What is your responsibility? What is our responsibility, individually and collectively? What does God demand of us? We can sum it up with two simple, yet extremely hard-to-grasp words. And it is the words, be holy. That's our responsibility. Hearing all of these things that come, and reading what is coming after the first fruits receive their reward and become helpers of Christ, become spirit beings to help Christ with the next phases of his plan that we've been hearing about. All of these, this talk of wisdom, knowledge, and understanding, there's a, there's a lot for us to grasp. How can we boil that down and what, to what our responsibility is? It is to be holy. We sang about it. We sang the, the Agnes Day song from our, our spiritual songbooks. Be holy is what God tells us. And I'd just like to review as we begin 
review the word of exhortation. It was, must have been six or eight weeks now that, that we, I first introduced this concept of being holy. Back in, and you don't need to turn there, but I, I, well, let's go. Let's go to this one, Leviticus 23. Let's go to Leviticus 23. So we can sort of just give a brief review because it sort of sets the stage for the rest of, of this understanding of the word holy. In Leviticus 23, where we find the presentation of the Sabbath, the weekly Sabbath and the annual Sabbaths, the holy days, we see this word convocation used several times. Verse 2, speak to the children of Israel. Leviticus 23, verse 2. Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, the feasts of the Lord, which you shall proclaim to be holy convocations, these are my feasts. Six days shall work be done, but the seventh is a Sabbath of solemn rest, a holy convocation. You shall do no work on it. It is the Sabbath of the Lord in all your dwellings. These are the feasts of the Lord. He then jumps into uh, the annual feast days here. These are the feasts of the Lord, holy convocations, which you shall proclaim at their appointed times. And on the 14th day of the first month at twilight is the Lord's Passover. And on the 15th day of the same month is the Feast of Unleavened Bread to the Lord. Seven days you must eat unleavened bread, and on the first day you shall have a holy convocation. And we took this apart in that word of exhortation and showed that this word convocation, which is used many, many times in the Torah, is always prefaced by the word holy. So there's something special, sacred, and set apart about these convocations. We broke this word convocation down to realize that it meant rehearsal that we are rehearsing God's plan of salvation. We are rehearsing the, the process of becoming Christ-like. We are rehearsing all of these things that we read about through Scripture. We get an opportunity to rehearse on God's holy time. We saw that we are to have holy convocations, which is what we're doing now when we gather together with God's people and, and, and worship together through song and through messages and fellowship. We also saw that the day themselves, the entire day is a holy convocation. You can see that in verse 2. These feasts of the Lord, which you shall proclaim to be holy convocations. The entire day is a holy convocation. You can see that in verse 3. The seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, a holy convocation. So that the entire day is a holy convocation because it is a rehear- the entire day is a rehearsal. We also have holy convocations, which is what we're having now. And we saw, we talked a little bit about here, we read some other scriptures, we won't go into them here, whereby God draws us into a relationship with him. We know we, we, know we are here because God called us and we answered a calling. We didn't come barging into God's throne room and saying, I want to be part of that. God put out the call, we heard it, we answered it, we struggled, however we struggled with, with the, the, the answer, the process of working through that, whether it was a smooth one or a difficult one, everybody has their own story. But when God calls us to be in his presence, he asks us to be holy because we are in his presence. When we come here, and we we closed off that word of exhortation by talking a little bit about when we pray, asking God to be here. And my suggestion that we don't ask God to be here, we ask God to accept us into his presence. Because we as a group must be holy. We as individuals, when we come into the Sabbath day, as individuals, as, fa- as, a, as your personal family, wherever, wherever it is that you keep the bulk of the Sabbath, you come into God's presence on this day because this is his time. And all that that means, but what it means to be in his presence. So that was sort of a recap of this word of exhortation that we heard about about eight weeks ago or so ago. Let's go now to 1 Peter 2 and talk, jump into this message on what it means to be holy. 1 Peter chapter 2. We'll start in verse 7. We, 
he starts out with the word therefore. He's hearkening back to verse 6 where he's quoting from Isaiah the prophet. So let's read that. Behold, I lay in Zion, verse 6, a chief cornerstone. So we're in 1 Peter 2, verse 6. Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. Therefore, because of that, what he was, he was writing about there, to you who believe, he is precious. But to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble, being disobedient to the word, to which they were also appointed. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who, were, who once were not a people, but are now the people of God, who had obtained mercy, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. When we read this passage by Peter, we see that there are only two groups of people. There are believers and there are the disobedient. We've heard this professed to us over these last five weeks in so many different ways, this same message. There are only the believers or the disobedient. We reference, we reference Deacon Jan's message on the two types of wisdom that we referred to in the introduction. There are only two types. There's either believers or there are the disobedient. There, there's nothing in between. How are true believers described? They are chosen. Chosen by God. Royal. So preparing to be kings. Holy. Preparing to be priests. This is what, we, what we've learned is the destiny of the first fruits that we are striving and hope to be a part of. Chosen, royal, holy, special. For what reason? Just because we're, we're something special, we're great? No. To proclaim or to preach that there is a Christ who is the way from being disobedient to a believer. There's a way to, to, there's a way to go to come from one group, the disobedient, to the other group, being a believer. And that is through Christ. And there is no other way. And as true believers, our task is to proclaim that. This is not some secret that we want to keep, keep to ourselves. There's a way, and we want everybody to know about it. So that whoever God is calling can come through this way. Whoever God is calling. Most won't, and we understand that. But it's not our job to determine who will and who won't. Our job is to simply say, hey, there's a way. Come this way. Come this way. And if they answer, they answer. And we are here to accept them. Let's go back to one, one chapter to where the scripture reading is from, where Brother Ray read from in chapter 1. So when we consider who, who, what Christ calls us, chosen, royal, special, holy people, we also read this warning from Peter at the end of his life as he's writing to the churches in general. Verse 13 of chapter 1. Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind. And a couple of years ago, we, we had that, a couple, three years ago, we had this in a sermon. We had this, this uh, uh, picture of what it really means to gird up your loins. An, an old-time a warrior from those days, and what it meant to gird up your loins. Gird up the loins of your mind. Be sober and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And Deacon Jan, a number of months ago, talked about true grace, what true grace really means. And the only way to understand true grace is to understand God's law and its impact on you. And the saving grace of Christ means so much more when you understand the impact of the law and, the, and we're going to, this all ties in together, these messages. This, the, upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ, as obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts. We're, Romans 12 talks about conforming to God's way. Peter here is saying it's possible to unconform or to deconform or to conform to the old ways. And we're not to do that. As in your ignorance. 
But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all conduct. We've talked about how behavior is, is mani- our, our belief system is manifested in our behavior, and we see that played out here. For he who has called you is holy, and you also be holy in all conduct. Because it is written, be holy, for I am holy. So we read this warning from Peter against succumbing to being like our former selves with a reminder from the Torah, from, the, from God's covenant. The, the law of God is expressed in his, his, his covenant to his people that we must be holy. Where is he quoting from? Where is he quoting from? We sing that song, Ancient Words. He's quoting from the ancient words. Let's go back to Leviticus chapter 11. Leviticus 11. Verse 44. For I am the Lord your God. Leviticus 11 verse 44. For I am the Lord your God. You shall... Pages here. You shall therefore consecrate yourselves, and you shall be holy, for I am holy. Neither shall you defile yourselves with any creeping thing that creeps on the earth, for I am the Lord who brings you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. This is one place where Peter's quoting from, and as as studious believers in the law, they knew they he knew the law. He was quoting from here. Interesting that it comes on the heels of clean and unclean meats, where God walks through and tells them what they can eat and what they shouldn't eat. And if they were to eat anything that was considered unclean, they would be defiled. Defiled is the opposite of holy. We don't want to be defiled. Verse chapter 19. Let's go forward to chapter 19. Because this is not just one spot where this is, this is written here in, in the Torah by Moses, by God through Moses. Chapter 19, verse 1. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, chapter 19, verse 2. Speak to all the congregation of the children of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. So the last place we read it was at the end of a diatribe on clean and unclean meats. Here it's at the beginning of another section on ceremonial law and moral law and the differences that, that God has here for us. We won't take time to dig into those, but it comes at the beginning of a longer description of his law. Be holy, for I am holy. Here's how you be holy. And then he goes in to describe more of his law. One chapter forward in chapter 20. Verse 6, and the person who turns to me mediums and familiar spirits to prostitute himself with them, I will set my face against that person and cut him off from his people. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am the Lord your God. And you shall keep my statutes and perform them. I am the Lord who sanctifies you. These are just a few places where in the law, God makes the specific and explicit command to be holy. And Peter borrowed from there and used that in his warning against regressing into our former selves. It's not coincidental that this command to be holy comes in conjunction with the giving of the law. And we see this in the three places we've read there. Let's go to Deuteronomy 23. And as you go to Deuteronomy 23, I'll remind you of what another reference that we made in that word of exhortation a couple of months ago, where we went to Exodus 3, which is the story of Moses as he was in the second 40-year period of his life, as he was about to be called to his, his calling of, of leading God's people out of Egypt, when he saw the burning bush, and it drew him up. And God said that God called him there, and that said, take your shoes off, because the ground upon which you walk is holy. Take your shoes off. You are in my presence. 
And we talked about being in God's presence. And the notion of what be, how holy is relate, being holy is related to being in his presence. And that coming into his presence is never to be taken lightly. Let's go to Deuteronomy chapter 23 here. Verse 1. Just for context. He who is emasculated by crushing or mutilation shall not enter the assembly of the Lord. So as we get context here, we remember this is God re-giving the retelling of the law to the second generation of Israelites before they, uh, before Moses was about was going to die. He was going to pass over leadership to Joshua, and then they would be allowed to enter the promised land. They were on the other side of the Jordan here. And God was giving them His law here to the second generation of Israelites. So and this and we and notice here. The context here is about entering into the assembly of the Lord. This is, this is what is being talked about here. That's why we read verse 1. Verse 9. When the army goes out against your enemies, then keep yourself from every wicked thing. Keep yourself from every wicked thing. And if there is any man among you who becomes unclean by some occurrence in the night, then he shall go outside the camp, and he shall not be inside the camp. So this special place of being in the camp was special. And to be in the camp was being in the presence of God. So you had to be holy and you had to be clean. But it shall be when the evening comes that he shall wash with water. And when the sun sets, he may come into the camp. And this work that he had to do was to impress upon him the need to be clean. And the need to understand what it means to be in God's presence. Verse 12. Also, you shall have a place outside the camp where you, may, where you may go out. And you shall have an implement among your equipment. And when you sit down outside, you shall dig with it and turn and cover your refuse. They didn't have plumbing that we have today. And we can be grateful we live today, where we live today. But there was a way to handle human waste. For the Lord, but there was a reason for it. It wasn't just God being God and I'm... I'm the boss, and I'm going to tell you how it's going to be. There was reasons for it, and we get to that in verse 14. Why? For the Lord your God walks in the midst of your camp to deliver you and give your enemies over to you. Therefore, your camp shall be holy, that he may see no unclean thing among you and turn away from you. This is heavy stuff about what it means to be holy and to be in God's presence. So much so that there was a specific way God wanted human waste handled. Because if it was not handled properly, he wasn't coming into the camp. And they needed God in their presence. He was the only thing keeping them going. So again, when we come together, where is our mind at? When we prepare for Sabbath, and we know we are coming into God's presence, as sunset comes... We are coming into God's presence. We read that in Leviticus 23. The entire day is a, is a holy convocation. But also when we come together here in this holy convocation, or when we are together on holy days, where is our mind at? Do we realize and do we remember that we are coming into his presence on the Sabbath? We are in his presence. And we are in his presence when we are amongst God's people. Shouldn't that have an impact on how we prepare ourselves, how we act, and how we treat one another? To realize that we are amongst, we are in the very presence of our Father. Not this predator that some goofball in Minnesota writes about, but in the presence of our Creator. Let's go to Joshua. Turn to Joshua 5. And as you turn there, We'll sort of set the context of the story of the people of God, the children of Israel here in Joshua 5. We read a little bit there in Deuteronomy. We talked about how this was the giving of the law to the second generation of Israelites after all the men of war over age 21 and over were allowed to die out in the wilderness, except for Joshua and Caleb. So that now God would try again with the second generation of Israelites because the first group showed no faith when they were right there to cross into the promised land very early on in their journey. So they wandered for 40 years, 
to have everybody die off and learn what they needed to learn. The background in Joshua, when you go through chapters 1 to 4, which again we don't have time to do here today, is preparing of the people, preparing them to cross. They had to make sure they were in a holy state because they were now going into the presence of into his land that we've heard talked about over these last number of weeks. They had to circumcise the second generation of the children of Israel. They, they kept their first Passover, and now we come to chapter 5. And we'll pick it up in verse 13. And it came to pass, when Joshua was by Jericho, that he lifted his eyes and looked. They were now in the promised land. And behold, a man stood opposite him with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for your adversaries? So he said, No, but as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped him and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? Then the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take your sandal off your foot, for the place where you stand is holy. And Joshua did so. So there's a lot here that we can see here. You'll recall further on in the New Testament in Revelation where an angel came and John fell prostrate before the angel. And the angel said, get up, don't you worship me like this. Here the commander of the Lord accepted the worship. So we know this to be Jesus, the one who became Jesus Christ. The same one who saw Moses used the same words. And and God does this through, through his scripture. We see this happen time and time again where they reference, they use the same verbiage to point us back to other things, like back in Exodus 3, where he said, take take the sandals off, because the ground upon upon which you walk is holy. We see the same thing happen here. So we are introduced here that Joshua was now in the presence of God. And to be in the presence of God required what was required to be holy. Chapter 6, let's continue on here in the story. Now Jericho was securely shut up because of the children of Israel. None went out and none came in. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand, its king and the mighty men of valor. So as Israel is is settling the promised land, they do so with the need to fight for it, with God's promise that if they follow him, he he will secure their victory. And here God is specifically telling Joshua, go take Jericho. I assure you, I promise you, you'll have victory. Verse 3, you shall march around the city, all you men of war. You shall go around the city once. This you shall do for six days. And you can read subsequent, the subsequent part of that story. We know about this, the commands of how this would take place, how this victory would take place. They would march around the city once. For six days, and on the seventh day, they would march around it seven times. We trace this to be uh, likely be the days of unleavened bread. Um, we know that we got all these special things that happen happen on God's holy time. That's a, a side light. Let's go up to verse 15 of chapter 6. We now come to day 7. There are very specific instructions. They were obviously new at this, so God was very specific about his instructions, as we see happens often in the early stages here. Verse 15, But it came to pass on the seventh day that they rose early, about the dawning of the day, and marched around the city seven times in the same manner. On that day, only they marched around the city seven times. And the seventh time it happened, when the priests blew the trumpets, that Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. Victory was, was, victory was in the bag here. Now the city shall be doomed by the Lord to destruction, and it shall it and all who are in it. Only Rahab the harlot shall live, she and all who are with her in the house, because she had the messengers that we sent. And you can see that earlier on in the story. And you, by all means, abstain from the accursed things. So there's a requirement here, abstain from the accursed things. Lest you become accursed when you take of the accursed things, and make the camp of Israel a curse and trouble it. So we're starting to, there's a huge warning here. Don't take of these things, because if you do, the entire camp is going to be, is going to be soiled and defiled. But all the silver and gold and vessels of bronze and iron are consecrated to the Lord, and they shall come into the treasury 
of the Lord. No booty this time. This was their first victory. This was their first place. And God required all of the booty, all of the silver, all of the, all of the valuables to be given to him, to, become, to come into his treasury. Why? Well, let's, we'll get to that. Let's go to chapter 7, verse 1. But there was a clear warning. Follow my instructions, or whoever does this will be accursed, and the entire camp will be accursed. The children of Israel, chapter 7 and verse 1, committed a trespass regarding the accursed things. So this is like we're, we're getting down into this movie, and now we've got the narrator telling us that something happened. We don't know what yet, but something happened. For Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah of the tribe of Judah, took of the accursed things. So the anger of the Lord burned against the children of Israel. So we, don't, we are now let in on the, what happened here. And now we're going to see this play out. Something went grievously wrong. So Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is beside beth Aven, on the east side of Bethel, and spoke to them, saying, Go up and spy out the country. So no one's aware of this except God and Achan. They're the only two that are privy to this. So now they're going to go about their business, settling other cities, conquering other cities as they go about settling the promised land. And they just had this huge victory over this great big city of Jericho. And they got this little one coming up that they just got to get through because there's better things on the other side. And they went up and spied out Ai. Verse 3, chapter 7, they returned to Joshua and said to him, Do not let all the people go up. But let about two or 3,000 men go up and attack Ai. Don't weary all the people here, for the people of Ai are few. If you're a sports fan, start your backup goaltender. This is going to be an easy team. Start your backup quarterback. Start your, backup quarter, uh, start your fifth pitcher. Go easy on this. We're not going to need to pull out all the artillery. Give the, give the superstars a break. Let's just send a few. This should be easy. Do not weary all the people there, for the people of Ai are few. So about 3,000 men went up there from the people, but they fled before the men of Ai. And the men of Ai struck down about 36 men, for they chased them from before the gate as far as Shabasharim, and struck them down on the descent. Therefore the hearts of the people melted and became like water. A huge, huge upset. What in the world happened? We know now because God told us in verse 1, but no one else has any clue what happened here. This was, this was the upset of all upsets here. Let's drop down to verse 10. Obviously, Joshua is now taken over from Moses. These are big, big shoes to fill. They've been following Moses for 40 years. These are huge shoes to fill. He's now the, he was the, the vice leader for so many years, and now he, the baton has been passed to him. They had this nice, easy victory at Jericho, and now they all fell on their faces, and he is, he's upset. God, why did you do this? Recall what uh, uh, in the, the prophecy in Habakkuk, about Habakkuk not understanding why, why God would do these things to his people. Joshua here was feeling the exact same thing. And we see that at the end of verse 9. What will you do for your great name? How can you let this happen? So the Lord said to Joshua, get up. Why do you lie like this on your face? Israel has sinned. You've been with me long enough. Do you not know that I promised you I'd be with you if you followed me? Somebody in your camp has sinned. Israel has sinned, and they have also transgressed my covenant, which I commanded them. For they have taken of the accursed things and have both stolen and deceived, and they have also put it among their own stuff. Therefore, the children of Israel could not stand before their enemies, but turned their backs before their enemies because they have been doomed to destruction. Neither will I be with you anymore unless you destroy the accursed from among you. Get up, sanctify the people, and say, sanctify yourselves for tomorrow, because thus says the Lord God of Israel, there is an accursed thing in your midst, O Israel, who cannot stand before your enemies until you take away the accursed things from among you. There is another promise. Until you get rid of the accursed things, you will continue to fall on your face in front of, regardless of the size of the enemy. But when we, go back to verse 10 there. All of Israel is accursed. 
all of Israel is defiled. What jumps out at you? Go back to verse 1. Who sinned? One guy. One guy sinned. And the entire group is now in jeopardy. The entire group loses God's protection. The entire group fell on their face. The entire group suffered defeat. The entire group, God doesn't want to be part of the entire group because one guy took a few things and he, he stuffed them in a bag and kept them because I don't understand why we've got to give everything to God. I'll just keep a little bit. We go on here. Verse 14. In the morning, therefore, you shall be brought according to your tribes, and it shall be that the tribe which the Lord takes shall come according to the families, and the family which the Lord takes shall come by households, and the household which the Lord takes shall come by man by man. We're going to do this the hard way, and we're going to go through every tribe and every group and every family until we find who did this. And we'll, do as, we'll take as long as we can to find this because the health of the, of the assembly is, is important. Then it shall be, verse 15, that he who is taken with the accursed thing shall be burned with fire, he and all that he has, because he has transgressed the covenant of the Lord and because he has done a disgraceful thing in Israel. Doesn't this seem kind of cruel? This is pretty heavy punishment because one guy took a few things, threw them in a sack, and wanted to do it his own way. This seems, this seems heavy. This seems, this seems cruel. Or does holiness and obedience matter? Maybe that's the way we should look at it. Maybe holiness and obedience actually matter to God. We won't take time to read verses 18 to 23. That's where the culprit is discovered. We know it was Achan. We, we read that back in verse 1. Let's drop down to verse 24. Then Joshua and all Israel with him. So this wasn't just Joshua. They all had to be in on this because he defiled them all. Took Achan, the son of Zerah, the silver, the garment, the wedge of gold. Just, so, just, a, just some silver, just a garment, and just a wedge of gold. Look what it cost them. His sons, his daughters, his oxen, his donkeys, his sheep, and his tent, and all that they had, all that he had, and they brought them to the valley of Achor. And Joshua said, Why have you troubled us? The Lord will trouble you this day. So all Israel stoned him with stones, and they burned them with fire after they had stoned them with stones. So they started with him, and then they did all of his family, all of his oxen, all of his animals, everything that, that he had. They stoned and then burned them. Why such heavy punishment? Let's go back to Deuteronomy 4. Why not just kill Achan, sit his family down, and say, we don't do this here? Deuteronomy 4. Recall, this is the same group of people that God stopped on the east side of the Jordan to walk them through this. So he didn't, this, wasn't, this shouldn't have been a surprise. Deuteronomy 4, verse 25. When you beget children and grandchildren, Deuteronomy 4, verse 25, and have grown old in the land and act corruptly and make a carved image in the form of anything and do evil in the sight of the Lord your God to provoke him to anger, I call heaven and earth to witness against you this day that you will soon utterly perish from the land which you cross over the Jordan to possess. You will not prolong your days in it, but will be utterly destroyed. And the Lord will scatter you among the peoples, and you will be left few in number among the nations, which is Lord, where the Lord will drive you. They were to teach their children. And I think Deacon Jan in the opening read from Deuteronomy 6 and covered similar words to what we're reading here. And we see this throughout the law. This was nothing they should have been surprised about. They were to teach their children the way. That is what they were to do. And as they were now new entrants into the promised land, it wasn't long. The very first battle, someone compromised this. Not only did he compromise this, he teaches his children to do this. Someone betrayed God at the very first opportunity that they had. 
and the group, not only did they betray God, they betrayed the group by not acting appropriately. When we study, and I'll reference, again, messages Deacon Jan gave a few years ago, and I think he covered them again earlier this year, on the differences between sin, transgression, and iniquity. The family here were affected by iniquity to the point that this punishment resulted. This just wasn't someone stole a couple of things. This was the very first opportunity you had to show your entire family what it means to be holy and how thankful you are to be in the, in the promised land. You betrayed me. You put your entire family at risk. We can't. This is where this third to the third and fourth generations results because of this extreme iniquity. They will have their opportunity to repent. This is what we talked about the last three weeks. Eventually, when God comes to through the first fruits to redeem Israel. But God's people here, these people who were alive, who didn't commit this sin, needed to learn that holiness matters. Being obedient matters to God. Let's go to chapter 8 of Joshua. Verse 1. Now, this is after the killing of Achan and his family, the putting to death of Achan and his family. Now the Lord said to Joshua, Do not be afraid nor be dismayed. Take all the people of war with you. Arise and go up to Ai. Now go back to Ai. Now do it the way I told you to do this. See, I have given into your hand the king of Ai, his people, his city, and his land. And you shall do to Ai and its king as you did to Jericho and its king. Now read the next sentence. Only its spoil and its cattle you shall take as booty for yourselves. Lay an ambush for the city behind it. How much would just one bit of patience have happened? They could have had all the spoils that they wanted. God wanted the... He wanted his tithe. He wanted the first fruits. This is all about first fruits. He wanted his first fruits. That's why the the they were not allowed to touch anything from Jericho because it was the first battle. It was the first set of, of, of first set of spoils. But now God says, take the spoil for yourselves. Take the cattle. This is this is what happens when you defeat. You can take this and use it for yourselves. Imagine just a little bit of patience. Follow God. I don't know why God's asking us to give everything to the treasury, but let me just try this and see if it works out his way. Wow, we get all the spoils of this whole victory. How patient obedience would have prevented all that loss of life. One person's state of holiness has a huge effect on the holiness of the entire group. One person's state of holiness has a, affects the entire group the entire group. Let's go to Matthew 5. We've read this many times. It's part of Christ's syllabus here as he begins his ministry. We call it the Sermon on the Mount. Verse 23, we'll cut into the context here. Therefore, Matthew 5, verse 23. Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. We've read that many times. We've broken that down and talked about how that impacts us. Because God will not accept our offerings if we have anything against a brother. He won't accept our offerings if we have anything against our brother. That's simple, but let's look a little closer. Let's look first at context. Let's go back to verse 17. Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For assuredly I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. 
nothing has changed. God's law is eternal. His moral law has not changed, and it is not done away. And nothing has changed in terms of God's expectations as prescribed by his law. So now, let's drop down to verse 21. Christ is now speaking as to matters of the heart. That is no longer just about killing. It's about what am I feeling and thinking on the inside? You have heard it said, verse 21, to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council, but whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. Christ is now speaking as to matters of the heart. He's transitioning God's people from thinking just about the, the thou shalt nots, as long as I don't kill, don't commit adultery, don't do this, don't do this, I'm good. I'm, I'm good in God's books. Christ is teaching that is way, way deeper than that. Way, way deeper than that. This is how God judges us. God judges us on the heart. Let's hold your place there. Let's go to Psalms 51. David understood this, how God judges our actions. Psalm 51. We'll pick it up in verse 1. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies, and blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I acknowledge my transgression, and my sin is always before me. Until you remove it from me, I, it's, it's a stain on me, and I can't get rid of it. Against you, you only have I sinned and done evil in your sight, that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. Dropping down to verse 10. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence, and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Please, please make me, please clean me up and make me who you need me to be. If we come, and this is where we get back to Matthew 5. And this, this you can turn back there if you like. We won't read anymore. But leaving your gift there and until you go fix things with your brother. If we come before God with an offering of any kind, whether it be worship, whether it be prayer, whether it be song, whether it be financial, whether it be a commitment of any kind, God says, go out of my presence. You are not clean enough to be here with me. You have something against another member of the body. Because we are in a state where we simply cannot be accepted into God's presence if we have something against the body. And therefore, we jeopardize everybody that's here if we have something against someone else that, is, that has gone gone unfixed. 1 John 4. Again, a familiar scripture. Let's read this in light of being holy. 1 John 4, verse 20. Connected to what we just read in Matthew 5. 1 John 4, verse 20. If someone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? And this commandment we have from him, that he who loves God must love his brother also. Something that Christ, John is writing many decades since the death of Christ, but God's ways hold true. And John here repeats it. How can we lay our life down for Christ? And not be able to lay our life down for any member of his body. Is there anyone in the body that you wouldn't lay down your life for? If we we can't answer that question conclusively, we have work to do. So some thoughts. I was going to say final thoughts, but it's a little longer than final thoughts. Let's go to Leviticus 18. We've covered some thoughts of how to do this back in the introduction. 
when we read through Romans 13 and Luke 14 and James 3. Those are, those are key go-to sections of Scripture. Let's go to Leviticus 18 and expand upon that. How do we do this? Verse 24, because again, this is all about, we recall the wisdom from above versus demonic wisdom. There are only two ways. We're either holy or we're disobedient. We're either, we're either called out ones or we're disobedient. This is all about being holy or being defiled. Verse 24 of Leviticus 18, Do not defile yourselves with any of these things, for by all these the nations are defiled, which I am casting out before you. For the land is defiled, therefore I visit the punishment of its iniquity upon it, and the land vomits out its inhabitants. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my judgments, and shall not commit any of these abominations, either any of your own nation or any stranger who dwells among you. For all these abominations the men of the land have done, who were before you, and thus the land is defiled. Lest the land vomit you out also when you defile it, as it vomited out the nations that were before you. For whoever commits any of these abominations, the, person who com- the persons who commit them shall be cut off from among their people. Therefore, you shall keep my ordinance, so that you do not commit any of these abominable customs which were committed before you, and that you do not defile yourselves by them. I am the Lord your God. There is a way that seems right to a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. We can't allow ourselves to be defiled by anything that is of this world and be in the presence of God. Because not only do we jeopardize our eternal life and our place among the first fruits and our ability to, to help Christ institute his plan that we've heard about, spoken to us over these last several weeks, and how important this land, this promised land is, we jeopardize everybody here. Everybody here is in jeopardy if we do. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. This is a very serious, and we know this. But it's, it's helpful to be reminded of this because we're human beings that forget. We're human beings that get distracted. We are human beings that have the pull of the adversary that we're fighting and trying to stay connected to God through the Holy Spirit so that we do not be, be pulled off course. But this walk we're in is serious. And we're hearing more and more as we have over the last five weeks about how serious and important this walk is. Now I, Paul, chapter 10, verse 1. 2 Corinthians. Now I, Paul, myself, am pleading with you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, who in, pre- who in presence am lowly among you, but being absent and bold towards you. But I beg you that when I am present, I may not be bold with that confidence by which I intend to be bold against some, who think of us as if we walked according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ and being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. When we see these, when we consider these concepts that we continue to to read about and hear about, the concepts of globalism, Marxism, postmodernism, the... the, the, um, all of, these, all of these things that, that the world is changing by, this group thing, this politicization of every concept, calling our father, creator father, a rapist, this, aren't, this isn't these, this people that are behind us. These are just tools of the devil, tools of the adversary. And it is against him that we fight. But we have the God's Holy Spirit. We have the promises of God, much like he gave Joshua, to say, listen, go fight, I promise you. You stay clean, you stay undefiled, I've got you. I've got you. Your eternal life, I I for sure will preserve your eternal life if, if you do not stray into disobedience. 
But this is a serious walk that we're a part of. And every year, while we, we get to see the, 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 the heavier concepts of, God, of God's word, it, it imparts upon us the seriousness of this walk. Let's go to Galatians 6. Being part of the body means we are a part of each other. As much as coming defiled puts the body in jeopardy, we flip that coin around, and being part of the body means that we, we help the body, that we are part of something bigger than ourselves. It means helping each other. We can't get so caught up in our own thoughts that we stop examining ourselves to be sure that we are becoming holy, not just for our sake, but for the sake of each other. Verse 1, Galatians 6. Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, and that's just not any man, that is within the body. If a brother is overtaken or a sister is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Consider yourself, lest you also be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one examine his own work, and then he will have rejoicing in himself alone and not in another. For each one shall bear his own load. We could go on and on and on and on about different sections of Scripture that help us understand what it means to be holy. But I'd like to close with just a couple of Scriptures to illustrate the point. Let's go back to Genesis 1. to illustrate the point that the entire Bible is full of what it means to be holy. This is the meaning of life. This is our duty, is to be holy. And these two words don't really encompass everything that that means. So God takes a pretty big section, a pretty big document to tell us what that means. Genesis 1, verse 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Unlike everything else that was created, that was made after its kind, we were made after God kind. That's pretty special. That is pretty special to be made after God kind. Let's go to Revelation 20. It said the entire book is full of what it means to be holy. So we'll start at the beginning, and let's go to the end. Revelation 20, verse 4. Revelation 20 and verse 4. I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received his mark on their forehead or on their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. This is the reason God has called us now, to be part of the first fruits, to be kings and priests, working for God in Christ. That once we obtain our eternal life, our reward at the return of Christ. That's when all of the hard work begins so that we can help bring bring about the remainder of his plan of salvation that we continue as we have for the last number of weeks to learn about. Being holy is a big, big, big deal to God. It is a big deal. It really, really matters to God. So much so that one person amongst us can defile the entire group. It really doesn't matter what I think. It really doesn't matter what you think. It really only matters what God thinks. And thankfully, he left us his word to settle those matters. So as we work together towards Passover, let us take our place in the body seriously. This is not a game, despite how some people act. This is not a game. Being in God's presence is a very special place to be. And it takes being holy and undefiled. We have all of the knowledge 
to know what it means to be holy. I can quote you all of it right here. Between all of us, I bet you we know we could quote a massive amount of this of the scriptures here. We have the knowledge, as we heard about a few weeks ago. What we need is to continue to develop the understanding and the wisdom from above to be consistent, so that at all times we are always holy, because we are being watched. We are being watched by the world. We are being watched by each other. We are being watched by God. And quite frankly, we are being watched by Satan, who is seeking a way in. This week, we, you may have caught some of the funeral, the long funeral, the several days funeral of the 41st president, George H.W. Bush. At the funeral service at the Washington National Cathedral, there was a profound statement that was made by one of the priests giving one of the, the messages. And I want you to consider this as we conclude. Consider the profoundness of this statement. He said, preach Christ at all times. That doesn't sound too profound to me. That's not all he said. What he said was this. Preach Christ at all times, and when necessary, use words. Think of the impact of that statement. Preach Christ at all times. When necessary, use words. This has been a podcast from the Burlington Congregation of the Church of God International. We hope you are blessed by it. To find out more about CGI Burlington, visit our website at cgiburlington.org.